For those of you who don't know me, my name's Graham. I'm the pastor here at Intuan, and I'm um, really glad that you could share this time with us. This is a pretty important day for us. We, uh, we think pretty much the whole thing hangs on today. Not, I mean, this service, but this day, Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Different people call it different things. To understand the uh, full implications, the full uh, personal implications of the Easter story, it requires us to pause very, very early in the, in, the, in the early moments of the story. The early moments that kind of rush by the story, we tend to rush by it when we're reading. Um, may, maybe even those early moments that got rushed by when you heard this story perhaps preached about in church, you, we're all waiting to get somewhere, right? So come with me, if you will, to that moment when Jesus was just being crucified. He's still hanging on a cross. People are staring. There's a, there's a large crowd. Somewhere hidden away in the back of the crowd are the disciples, the ones that have not yet fled the city. In the back of the crowd, there are some of those who have followed Him all the way in the north from Galilee. But let me tell you, who wasn't there, all right? When Jesus was crucified, there were no Christians. There was no church. There was no Bible. There were no believers, zero. When Jesus was crucified, all that was left were a couple of dozen Galileans who were brokenhearted, overwhelmed with sorrow and confusion. Their leaders, their religious leaders, had conspired with Rome, their enemy, to murder, to falsely accuse, and to crucify the best person that they had ever known. Someone who was not supposed to die. Someone who they had come to believe was God's ultimate and final Messiah, God's final King. And yet, in less than 24 hours, He was arrested, He was tried, and He was crucified. They were in shock. It all happened so fast. This is completely unexpected. They thought, his closest followers who were still in Jerusalem at the time, they thought they were on the verge of winning. Just, just four days before this, they had come into the city of Jerusalem, and as they got closer and closer to the city, the crowds that had followed Jesus and his disciples had grown and grown and grown. By the time they got there, there were people outside the city walls who are welcoming Jesus in like, like he's a conquering hero, uh, like, like he's some sort of military general who just brought glory to their city and glory to their nation. And at first, like we were just singing, it's religious, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then it becomes political. Hosanna, same word. Save us. Blessed be Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the King. There's so much momentum. There's so much excitement. The men and women that have been following Jesus for, in some cases, two, three years are realizing this is it. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. This is when Jesus takes off that rabbinic robe and he will now proclaim himself king and the long-awaited Messiah. 
They're on the verge of winning. Then suddenly, unexpectedly, it's just over. And there he is, hanging on a cross. And it's important to know that the goal of crucifixion in ancient times is not simply death. We know that there are way more quick, easy ways to kill a person. The goal of crucifixion is twofold. It's terror for the community, to keep the community under control. And it was oblivion for the person who was crucified. The goal of crucifixion was that basically it's like you never, ever existed. It's like you never even happened. Who are we talking about? The remains of a crucified body were taken off, put in a dump. Ultimately, they rot, and then whatever was left was eaten by wild animals, but for a price. For a price. You could bribe sometimes a Roman centurion for the body of someone who had just been crucified. The gospel writers, they tell us that Nicodemus, who was a a well-known Pharisee in the city of Jerusalem, and another guy, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a well-known citizen, in the city, they actually bypassed that whole centurion route, and they went right right to the top. They went straight to Governor Pilate, and they asked, could we please be given the body of Jesus for a proper funeral, proper burial? The gospel writers tell us that they take Jesus' body to a cave that has just recently been renovated to provide to serve as a tomb for a family. And they prepare his body for burial with uh, spices, and and they wrap him in linen, as was the Jewish custom. And they're going to seal him in this tomb. And and the way things went, uh, they they would come back years later. Sometimes a family member would come back years later, open the tomb, remove the bones, put the bones in a box called an ossuary or a bone box. And uh, anytime places are excavated in Galilee, all the way down to Jerusalem, even today, there are thousands and thousands of ossuaries, these bone boxes that keep being dug up. So the goal would be to take uh, Jesus' bones, put them in an ossuary, and His family would take it. We keep ashes sometimes. They kept bones. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea They prepared Jesus' body for burial, right? And the reason they did is because they had kind of hoped, uh, they were kind of secret followers of Jesus, but because of the reputation in the community, they were torn as to how public they could be, how public they should be about the fact that they actually believed that Jesus was sent from God and that He was Israel's Messiah, God's final King. Clearly, he was not, right? I mean, but, but he was a good man, and he did not deserve to be treated like a common criminal. So they did what they could for him, and then they hurried home before the sun set to celebrate the Sabbath. Meanwhile, about 2,400 kilometers away in Rome, Tiberius Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, has no idea what's going on in what he would consider the armpit of the Roman Empire down in the area known as Judea. Saul of Tarsus, uh, who would later become the Apostle Paul, who would write about half the New Testament, 
Saul of Tarsus is somewhere in Jerusalem. He's celebrating Passover and the Sabbath. He's rejoicing with his friends, gathering together with his friends. They're probably all Pharisees because he was a Pharisee and a really good Pharisee. They're celebrating that this troublesome rabbi who'd been stirring things up had been finally taken off the scene, wouldn't have to hear about him again. And there's Thomas, the disciple with the unfortunate nickname, Doubting Thomas. He's fled the city along with some of the others of Jesus' followers because if they could take the leader of the movement, certainly they would come for his followers as well. And meanwhile, Peter and James and John, a few others are huddled together somewhere hidden in the city of Jerusalem, and they are trying to figure out how to get out of the city. What do we do next? Where do we go? And Peter considers, uh, maybe it's time to get back to my father's fishing business. And some of the guys in the room with him would probably go along. And there's Matthew. Poor Matthew. He has no job prospects at this time. And across town, women are gathered. The women. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary, and Mary, and Mary, and Mary. If you know the story, there's a lot of Marys. Uh, the gospel tells us that uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is gathered with these women. And for those of you who are moms, can you even imagine what she's in the midst of? Standing in a crowd just a couple of hours ago, watching your son stripped naked and nailed, bleeding to a cross. Yeah, no doubt, Mary, the mother of Jesus, no doubt she is in shock. So, so what you have in this moment, the reason that we're pausing here is you have confused citizens, you've got frightened ex-disciples, you have a broken-hearted mom, broken-hearted women, but one thing that you did not, you would not have found in that moment, you would have found no Christians, no believers, there were no followers, nobody they write themselves into the story. They're the ones writing it. They write themselves into the story as unbelievers. Nobody, including Jesus' mother, believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world anymore. If he couldn't, if he wouldn't even save himself, certainly he was not the long-anticipated king of Israel. How could he be? It's important to know that nobody in this group, according to their own testimony, nobody was planning to keep the dream alive. They were all just going to go back to work, try to get out of the city safely, try to just get back to normal. Nobody's working to keep the dream alive. No one's looking to make the movement start moving again. Because why bother? This is something that can frequently be overlooked in our rush. Something that you can overlook, and, and if you used to be a person of faith and, and, and you walked away or you drifted away or maybe you were chased away uh, or maybe you behaved yourself away or you just lost interest, perhaps somebody talked you out of this whole Jesus thing. This is really, really important. The centerpiece of Jesus' ministry, believe it or not, was not His teaching. The driving force of Jesus' ministry was not his teaching. Truth be told, his teaching 
it's incredibly impractical, right? He didn't have a YouTube channel that boasted killer life hacks. Follow me for more. Much of his teaching was incredibly offensive. Pay your taxes. Come on, is that a great way to start a movement? Right? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Lust equals adultery? Who's left? Turn the other cheek. Forgive regardless? I mean, who's going to do that stuff? How is that going to catch on? Who's going to follow someone who teaches that? Jesus didn't come to leave us with a collection of insights, quotable quotes, short stories, hot takes, and parables. You know what the problem was? He didn't ask people to trust his ideas and to buy his book. It wasn't even follow my tips for living. He instructed his followers to follow him. He said, follow me. Put your trust in him. Put your trust in me. It wasn't his ideas and his insights that got him executed, that got him crucified. It's who and what he claimed to be. He claimed to be a king. He claimed to be Israel's Messiah. Read the Gospels, okay? He claimed, and this means nothing to us, right? We're distanced by history and culture. But this was so offensive in the first century in Judea. He claimed to be greater than Moses. Say what? Greater than Moses? Who can be greater than Moses? Moses gave us the Torah. Moses gave us the law. If you're claiming to be greater than Moses, you're claiming to be greater than the law. Jesus said, I'm greater than the prophets. The prophets. Dude, you can't be greater than the prophets. God himself sent the nation of Israel, the prophets. And then his ultimate offense, Jesus claimed to be greater than the temple. The entire structure, the entire system that was set up that represented how to make things right between you and God. Jesus says, I'm greater. One who is greater than the temple has come. And the implication for the people who heard this was, if you're greater than the temple, then the temple no longer has any purpose. To which Jesus would smile and say, just wait. On one occasion, he looked at his disciples and he said, if you've seen me, this is what... This is what will get him in really big trouble, super fast. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The point being that Peter and the boys, they they did not follow Jesus because of what he taught. At times they followed Jesus in spite of what he taught. They followed him because of who they, they came to believe that he was, who he claimed to be. But in this moment that we've paused in, they were all wrong. The Holy One of God, the Messiah of God, we can't be killed. Can't be killed, certainly not by a foreign power. So when Jesus died, the Jesus movement died right along with him. Dead stop. It's important to know as well, because this gets confusing in our modern culture. Jesus was not a reformer, okay? He didn't come to reform something. He didn't come to change something. He didn't come to make something better. 
He was very clear about this. And again, this is why he got into so much trouble. He came to establish something brand new. And the temple leaders and, and all of Rome did not want anybody establishing anything brand new. Thank you very much. They want to manage what was, keep things as they are. And Jesus says, I'm beginning something brand new. So he gathered up his guys. So they're up in Syria. And he says, I'm beginning something new, a brand new congregation, a brand new assembly, a brand new movement. And on this declaration, I'm the Christ, Son of the living God. Peter had just made it. Peter had just said it. He says, on this declaration, I will create, I will establish my ecclesia, my church, my movement, my gathering, my congregation. All those words kind of are supposed to mean the same thing. And guys, you don't have to worry. When you pass away, It'll go on. It's going to continue. Not even the gates of Hades will stop what we are beginning together right now. He didn't come to reform something. He didn't come to make something better. He came to create something absolutely brand new. And now, politicians and activists in our world, they, they often try to co-opt Jesus for their thing, whatever their thing is. But read the Gospels. Jesus did not leave that option open to us. His first century followers, those who were there for it in the midst of it, in the middle of all the action, they understood this. So when Jesus breathed his last, his ecclesia did as well. Rome had won. The disciples actually write themselves into the story as a group of people who all collectively recognized that Rome had won. They all unfollowed Jesus. They flee when he's arrested. They keep their distance during the crucifixion. They gather in the city or they flee the city to decide what to do, where to go next. But there were no Jesus followers when Jesus was crucified. There were no Christians. No one believed in a resurrection that day. There was no church. There was no Bible. The point of the Easter story, when Jesus died, when he breathed his last, everybody, everybody, including his mother, expected Jesus to do what dead people usually do. Stay dead. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they prepared his body. They prepared his body to stay dead. That's why they did it. And on Easter morning, no one's standing outside the tomb counting backwards from 10 with the whole group there counting it down. 10, 9, 8, 7. Nobody's there. In the, in the Gospels, it tells us that the women who loved Jesus got up just as the sun is rising. The Sabbath is coming to an end, and they get up in time to go to the tomb to re-prepare Jesus' body for burial. Because they assume that Jesus is going to stay dead, right? When they get there, I mean, the reason they went back is because the text tells us they were with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus when they prepared Jesus for burial. And apparently, they didn't think that the men did it properly. So they came back the next morning to redo it, you know, properly. Somebody better fold out this thing properly. No Christians, just an empire. 
There's a relieved Roman governor. Oh, yeah, Pilate is so relieved. Passover, always a time of trouble, right? That's where patriotism kind of surfaces in unhealthy ways in the city of Jerusalem. Whew, got through another Passover. We'd gotten rid of that troublesome rabbi. Everything's going to get back to normal now. The relieved Roman governor and the sad Galileans. The emperor, empire, and the temple had conspired together to rid themselves of this radical rabbi, potentially avoiding a bloody uprising. Crisis averted. We did it. Everything and everybody gets back to normal. That's the mood. Get the picture? Now, hit pause right there. All right? We're going to fast forward 350 years to a very specific date. February the 27th in the year 380. You know it. That's when the Roman emperor Theodosius I actually issues what's referred to as the Edict of Thessalonica. And you go, right, got it. He passes a brand new law, a brand new law that makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Not only does he, does he do that, he actually ends state support for the pagan priesthood. So long, Zeus. Now, the pagan priesthood has been supported by Rome all these years. They lose their financial support. And all of that financial support shifts to the church of Jesus. Christianity is declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. And when you hear these two things, you look at what happened after the crucifixion of Jesus, then you hear about this, our response should be, what? Hold up. Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. Rome crucifies the leading figure of a Judean cult with the help of his own people. Rome goes on to sponsor legal crime, oppression, and persecution against the followers of this Jewish rabbi. Then Rome considers the same rabbi, this crucified rabbi, this rabbi that they crucified, Rome considers this same rabbi a god, and not just a god. The, this god goes on to replace the entire Roman pantheon of gods. Jesus wasn't even Roman. Jesus had never even been to Rome, never stepped foot inside the city. Hit pause here again. More fast forward, zip ahead to today, to us, to now. Today, there is no Roman Empire. But today in the city of Rome, it's full of crosses. But the crosses don't represent Roman crucifixion. The, the crosses in Rome actually represent a single crucifixion. They crucified hundreds of thousands. It's the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And in our modern times, this cross is no longer a symbol of suffering and shame and terror and oblivion. This cross represents hope and salvation and compassion. No one in the first century would ever believe this. In our world, the cross represents the love of God. So today, 2,400 kilometers away from Rome, we're back in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's filled with thousands and thousands of Christian tourists from all over the world who want to walk where the leader of some cult walked. They want to walk where this first century Galilean rabbi once walked. 
If that's all you knew, okay, okay, troublesome rabbi, crucified by Rome, considered a god by the empire that crucified him, and now hundreds of millions of people believe that he's divine, and they gather in places like this, larger and smaller, all over the world, especially on a day like today to worship him. If that's all you knew, and by the way, all of that is historically indisputable. But if that's all you knew, crucified, rallied around, deified, and worshiped all over the world, if that's all you knew, then the question that has to be asked, the question you've got to think about, what happened? How? Not what was written, but what happened? Because something extraordinary must have happened to bring all of that about. Clearly, there's more to the story. Clearly, I've left something out of the story. Clearly, something caused all of those incredibly huge changes to happen in a relatively short amount of time. And what happened? That's why we're here. That's why we gathered today. What happened is why we gather on a day like today. What happened is recorded for us by uh, Matthew. He was a guy who was there, recorded by Mark, who got all of his information from Peter, who was there. Luke, who investigated everything and talked to everyone he could find. John, who was there. James, the brother of Jesus, who was part of these events. The Apostle Paul, who steps into history onto those pages as someone who hates Christians, well-known in history as a Christian hater. He has decided that it'll be his personal mission to put the church out of business. Somehow, he becomes a Jesus follower, and then he goes on to write about half of the New Testament. They all tell us what happened, what connected all of these dots. So let's read a portion of John's explanation. Here's what he said. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the tomb, the stone had been removed from the entrance. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. That's what you can do when you're the writer. <laughs> you, you can describe yourself like that. And he says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. She, she does not come running up to a group of people who were all intense Jesus followers. She doesn't run up to them and say, it's amazing. He must be alive because the body's missing. She draws the same conclusion any one of us would draw. The tomb has been opened, and someone has stolen the body. We don't know who took the body, but somebody took the body. We don't know where it is. Do you guys know where it is? Because we were there. It ain't there now. Do you know where it is now? Nobody, not even in this moment, is assuming a miracle. How do we know? Because they tell us about themselves. They write themselves into the story as confused by an empty tomb, because nobody expected no body. Nobody expected a miracle. Nobody expected a resurrection. Nobody here wrote themselves into the story as the hero. 
as the diehard, not even the guy who takes the time to say, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Nobody's saying, I knew it. We, we knew it, right? Of course we knew. We're hardcore. Nobody. Just like the guy from the bad boy furniture company. <laughs> Nobody. They all expected Jesus to do what dead people do, which is, of course, to stay dead. Luke chimes in. He's telling part of the story. He says, Luke chapter 24, verse 11. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Yeah, right. You're not so good with directions, are you? I mean, you guys went to the wrong tomb, didn't you? There's, there's no way that during Sabbath somebody broke into the tomb, stole the body. You're confused. And I know, I know, we're all brokenhearted, okay? It's a very emotional time for all of us, and especially you, because uh, you know you are women. Uh, we, we still like you. Don't worry, right? But we think that you probably just, you went to the wrong tomb, didn't you? Tombs kind of look a lot alike, especially early in the morning, right? That's probably what happened. So Peter says, don't worry. I'll wrap it up. I'll go check it out myself. I'll go. And John says, you know what? I'll go with you. And so something interesting happens. You go back to John, John chapter 20, verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, and both were running. All right, you know what? Like, okay, okay, ladies, uh, you just go ahead and sit here. Why don't you have yourself a cup of tea? Uh, we'll go check it out. We'll get it straight. We're the men. We'll sort it out. We'll figure it out. And they begin to walk, and they begin to think. They begin to they continue to walk, and they continue to think, and suddenly there's energy under there. And the next thing they know, Peter takes off running. And then John, John, takes off running, and they're glad. They're glad that they took the time to strap on their Air Joseph sneakers. They're going to make some time. John takes time out of his busy schedule to include this interesting detail. Pressure's on him. Got lots to do, but John, you know, the one that Jesus loved, he'd want me to remind you. Ver verse 3, here again we go. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Four, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John includes that <laughs> in, in his gospel, right? Just wanted to make sure I document the facts, right? For all time, for all of history. It's one of those details that when you read it in the gospels, you think this must be true. Because why would anyone include that? Why would you make that up? Why say that, putting your hand up, like, look at me, look at me, and then fully go along with the fact that you had no idea what happened to Jesus' body? No hint, no glimmer of understanding or remembrance of anything he had said. Anyway, so John, because he outran Peter. He gets to the temple first, the temple, the tomb first. Five, he bent over and he, and he looked at the strips of linen that are lying there, but he didn't go in because you don't go into a tomb. That's where dead people are and you don't want to mess with that because that's weird and you're unclean. 
6, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb because that's how Peter rolls. He saw the strips of linen lying there. 7, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Eight, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, (laughs) he just keeps saying that, right? Also went inside. He saw and believed. That moment. Later that afternoon, Jesus visits very much alive with the apostles in the city. And here's what the gospel writers tell us. Here is what history tells us. They immediately re-engage with the message and the mission of Jesus. They did not re-engage because of what He taught. And they didn't re-engage because of something they believed. They re-engaged instantly because of what and who they saw. They re-engaged because something had happened. Turns out, he was everything he claimed to be and more. He was, in fact, as he told Mary and Martha after Lazarus died, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not a category, right? No one else would even know what those things are. It's not something that you read about or something that you study. And he says, look at me, Mary and Martha. You are looking, you are staring at the resurrection and life, which made absolutely no sense to them at all. But suddenly... All of these things that Jesus taught and all these things that Jesus had claimed, all these things that Jesus said about himself, suddenly all these dots are connecting. And this movement that was dead reignites in a moment because he was now, they saw it, God's final king who came to die for his subjects instead of requiring his subjects to die for him. It was an upside-down kingdom. And now they have understood and they re-engaged. The interesting thing about the Easter story, and this is what I wish I could tell every single human being on planet earth, the resurrection of Jesus is not a Bible story. The resurrection of Jesus is the story. It's the story, and it intersects with your story And it intersects with my story, and it intersects with everyone's story. Not only does the resurrection of Jesus resolve one of history's greatest mysteries, and that is, how did the teachings of Jesus survive the first century with with Rome and the temple aligned against them? How did the church survive the first century with Rome and the temple aligned against them? Why is there still a church today? The resurrection of Jesus, it really does resolve history's greatest mystery, but it resolves another mystery as well. It resolves a personal ministry. Mystery. It resolves the mystery of how you can know where you stand with God. And how does God view you? And how does God view your failure? How does, how does God view your sin? How does God see you? How does God feel about you? The resurrection of Jesus resolves that mystery because Jesus taught on all those things. He's the only person 
whoever lived who could speak with authority on the topics of how does God feel about the human race? How does God feel about me? And how does God feel about you? John, fast John, John the disciple who, by the way, is the one that Jesus loved, faster than Peter, John, John, as an older man, he gives us his account of the life of Jesus. He ju- we just looked at a, at a tiny little part uh, of, of what he wrote today, but in that account, he makes the statement that became one of the most quoted statements in all the world, certainly the most quoted verse out of the New Testament, the most quoted verse out of the, the, the Bible in general. John is the one who says, let, let, me, let me just tell you how the life and death and resurrection of Jesus resolved the greatest personal mystery uh, of where we stand with God. He said, the best way that I can describe it is this. He has to jump into his own story that he's telling at that time to to break this out so the people would get it because he didn't get it at the time. After being with Jesus for those three years and being there for all of it, this is what he wrote, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, meaning God so loved the people in the world that He did what you do when you love someone. He gave. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, whoever places their trust in Him, whoever places their full weight on Him, places their confidence in Him, places their hope on Him, places their faith in Him. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, shall not be lost to God, but have eternal life. And in spite of what you may have heard, and in spite of how maybe Christians have treated you, or perhaps how the, the church has treated you, He's not finished. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So if you grew up in a version of Christianity that left you feeling condemned or that in fact condemned you, John would jump right back in here, John the disciple that Jesus loved, and he'd say, I'm not sure where you got that. I, I, I don't know who told you that. That's the wrong version. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son, uh, did not send His Son to the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved, that the world might be saved through, you know, by means of Him, Him being Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus made absolutely no sense until the resurrection. The resurrection is why the story was told, because everything up until that point wasn't all that remarkable, and it wasn't necessarily worth repeating without the validation, because many people had been crucified by Rome, many people. The resurrection of Jesus is not a Bible story. It is the story. It is the reason that we have the Bible. Not only did the resurrection make sense of Jesus' crucifixion, it made sense of everything that Jesus had said. It took people who had given up and got them back in. It made sense of God's love for the whole world because His secret ambition, His ambition from the very beginning was to die so that we could live. 
His resurrection means that He is who He claimed to be. A Savior, the Savior, peace with God, a reason to believe, a reason to follow, a reason to believe that He is a King worth following because after all, no other king, no other king would wash our feet. No other king would wash anybody's feet. No other king would provide a table for his enemies. No other king would lay down his glory for the least of these. No other king would touch disease, would would touch a leper's skin. No other king would open his arms to let the outcast in. They wouldn't respond with mercy in the face of my sin. They wouldn't respond with mercy in the face of your sin. No other king would have to put up with the mockery and being led to slaughter and then stand there before Governor Pilate and refuse to speak and take up his cross and choose to die with thieves. Take up his cross and give his life for you and for me. That's why we celebrate. Right? That's why Easter is a big deal. It's the end of the end of the story that makes the story worth telling. And I've never, ever heard of another king like that. Kind Father, I thank you for the gift that we have received that has been offered before us. Some of us have chosen to accept that gift, but the gift is there regardless of whether we receive it or not. Thank you for hope. Thank you for life. Thank you for love. Thank you for giving definition to these terms that we use so glibly and loosely. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your choice, your decision to say I'm worth it, to say we're worth it. We're worth taking everything that you took on, scourging and beating and humiliation and betrayal, crucifixion, You took it all on so that we might have hope in our life now. And it seems distant from history, but the reality is the same now as it was then. You opened a doorway, a pathway to God, the only way to God. You are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. You are the resurrection and the life. And you give hope for our today, bright hope for our tomorrow. As we are in your midst, in your presence, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal truth, that we would understand, that we would get what we haven't gotten before. And then maybe like those disciples who had lost all their belief and all their faith, and how do we just get back to normal? Something happened, and they were reignited. Lord Jesus, I pray again that you would give us understanding that something happened and that you would ignite us or reignite us back into this mission. That the world may know that God loves them and Jesus died for them. Make me a part. Use us. Make us a part of bringing freedom and hope to people all around the world, the ones that look like us and the ones that don't, 
the ones that agree with us and the ones that don't agree with us yet. May we be faithful in our call to live the love of Jesus wherever we go. Thanks for not sending us out to do that on our own, but empowering us to go forward with the presence of your Spirit. Thanks, Jesus. Amen.